0: As we all know, uh, New Year's resolutions are very popular ways to start a new year. Uh, New Year's resolutions are those goals that people set forth whenever they turn the calendar to a new year. uh, Goals that they think that if they are able to accomplish those goals, it, it will enable them to make some very positive changes in their lives. Last week we were talking about how we can set our eyes, set our sights on making Christ our number one priority in this new year, in 2012 and beyond. Now, you can look at this as a New Year's resolution, but I actually prefer not to. I prefer to look at it more as a wholehearted commitment we're making for our entire lives. And one of the reasons I shy away from using that New Year's resolution terminology is because New Year's resolutions have such a terrible track record. I mean, think about it. We, we so often set New Year's resolutions, these great goals that we think will lead to some sort of positive life change. But it's so easy to fail— to live up to those goals. Uh, Studies have shown that nearly 90% of all people who make New Year's resolutions fail to keep those resolutions through the rest of that year. So, you know, I think this is not true just with New Year's resolutions. I think it's true with all goals in life, that we start out with great intentions, start out with a lot of enthusiasm for those goals, but we don't really follow through on them oftentimes. Today I want to talk about what could be called a secret ingredient towards helping us keep our goals in life. Now, the secret ingredient actually isn't all that secret. Uh, It's something we've already talked about a little bit this morning. It's something we probably all recognize as being important, but it's something that we don't apply nearly as much as we should towards trying to achieve our goals in life. That secret ingredient we're talking about this morning is fellowship. It's the authentic connection of people who have similar goals with us with the goal of attaining whatever those goals are that we've set out to follow. You know, fellowship in terms of achieving goals isn't something that's just restricted to Christians trying to follow Christ more wholeheartedly, although that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Fellowship is actually a powerful um, ingredient towards achieving almost any goal we set out towards. I, I saw an article recently in, in a magazine called Wired. Uh, it's called Wired Magazine. They were studying why does Alcoholics Anonymous have so much success Um, in helping people overcome their addictions to alcohol. Now it's not a 100% success rate, but compared with a lot of other ways out there to try to overcome alcoholism, AA has a lot of success. This article in this magazine started out by saying, despite all we've learned over the past few decades about psychology, neurology, and human behavior, contemporary medicine has yet to devise anything that works markedly better. And so this article sets out to figure out what makes AA so powerful in in helping people overcome um, their alcoholism. And they pointed to one factor. There are many different factors that can help, but they found out there's one factor that helps more than any other factor, and that's the power of a small group of like-minded friends to provide support, honesty, and accountability for one another. They they say that's really the, the primary part of the power behind AA, although there are other Uh, Parts of that is the accountability and the friendship, the camaraderie that comes along with the like-minded group of people trying to achieve similar goals. We see the same thing in other parts of life, too. Uh, There was a study back in 2009 of people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and it found that of those who were involved in group therapy uh, for this disorder with other people who were suffering from similar symptoms, about 88% of those in group therapy found significant relief or even a complete relief at times from the symptoms of this disorder. And that's compared with only about 31% of those with similar symptoms who just went to one-on-one therapy. There's significant power in coming together with a group of like-minded people who are trying to achieve a similar goal. I mean, you see the same thing in in any variety of types of life. I mean, you think about uh, athletics. If you want to set out to run a marathon or a triathlon or, or just get in shape, it's going to work a whole lot better if you have some others around you who can help, help you focus on that goal and follow through on the goal you set out to achieve. I mean, it's that way in all parts of life. It's the way God has wired us. And this is no less true in our walks with God. And we're talking about making Christ our priority in 2012 and beyond. But in this intention and in this goal, just like all the others, if we don't have people around us who are going to help spur us on towards that goal, the goal of, of making Christ number one may fall by the wayside just like any other goal in our lives that it's so easy to fall away from. So today I want to talk about this ingredient of fellowship and how fellowship with other Christians who want to make Christ number one in their lives too can help us to follow Him faithfully this year and beyond. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews 10, you can find a Bible in the pew or the chair in front of you if you didn't bring one. Hebrews 10 Uh, Hebrews is a book that's written to Jewish Christians. It's called Hebrews because uh, Jews then, back in this time and then today, spoke the language of Hebrew. So it's called Hebrews because it's written to Jewish Christians. They're Jewish because of their culture, because of their religious background. But they're Jewish people who have found that Jesus is the Messiah. So they set out and following him. Now this letter called Hebrews written to these Jewish Christians has a lot of uh, references to Jewish traditions, Jewish religious systems. They're things that we may not understand fully today unless we understand some of that Jewish background. And we're actually going to encounter a little of that in our passage today. And I'll say that as I was preparing for, for this message this morning, I was tempted to only focus on the last two verses of this passage. Um, the last two verses focus in specifically on the topic of connecting with other Christians. But as I studied the passage this week, I, I realized that there's a broader context that's really important to keep in mind. And so we're going to look at the broader context, beginning in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, going through verse 25. Uh, So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I begin reading in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, where the author says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now we're going to look at this passage in two different parts this morning. Uh, the first part is that part that I said I was tempted to leave out, but it's the part that really provides the context for the importance of meeting together with other Christians. So the first part we're looking at is verses 19 through 23, which shows us that Jesus enables us to draw near to God with confidence. Jesus enables us to draw near to God with confidence. Uh, This passage, the first part of this passage is all about Jesus. I mean, all of us would agree on that. But when you look into these first few verses of the passage I read, you see a lot of terms that may be confusing. Uh, Things like this most holy place. You may wonder, okay, why is it talking about some curtain? What's it talking about this great priest here? As I said earlier, this book is written to Christians who have a Jewish background. And these, these terms that he's pointing to about the most holy place and the curtain and the the, the priests and some of these other terms have a Jewish background to them. And so we have to understand this Jewish background if we want to understand fully what the author is referring to here in terms of how Jesus enables us to draw near to God. What, what the author is referring to is the Jewish tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent, a structure that was carried around by the Israelites as they wandered through the desert and then as they entered the, the promised land of Israel. Um, It was this tent structure that was central to their worship of God. Uh, When they would set up camp out in the desert, this tent structure the tabernacle would be in the center of the camp. And if you look at the tabernacle from an aerial view, there are three main parts of the tabernacle. Now, the reason I'm sharing this is to help us understand uh, this passage a little bit more fully. There were three main parts of the tabernacle. The largest part was called the outer court. The outer court was the place where any Jew could go into. There was an altar there and some other things Like I said, any Jew could go into the outer court of the tabernacle. Now, the Jewish temple, which came along later, had a very similar layout. But but anyone, any Jew could go into the outer court. Now, there are two rooms within the tabernacle. The outer court was outside, open to the elements. There were two rooms, though, enclosed rooms. One was called the holy place. The holy place was a place where only Jewish priests could enter. They enter there to, on a regular basis to perform their priestly duties, sacrifices, burning incense, um, things like that. Any Jew could go into the outer court. Only priests could go into the holy place. He had one other part of the tabernacle or the temple, that was the most holy place. The most holy place was a place on earth that was seen as, as, as the most intimate, powerful presence of God anywhere on this earth. In the most holy place, only one person could enter that place and only once a year. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And it was seen as such a sacred place that when the high priest entered once a year to make atonement for the people of Israel, he had to wear a rope around his leg. So that if something happened to him while he was in there, if he had a heart attack, if he was struck down by God and he died or he went unconscious— the other priest would be able to pull him out by the rope because they felt like that was such an intimate, powerful presence of God that no one else could go in there to help him out. So, so this most holy place represented the most powerful, intimate presence of God on earth. Only one person could go in there, and only once a year. It was a very restricted access type of place. So we come to our passage here today. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence in, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Do you hear what he's saying? You have this most holy place, the most, most revered, uh, most, uh, most feared place in all of Israel, in all the world, the very intimate presence of God. We have confidence to enter that place. But the confidence comes through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the, the, the factor that keeps us separated from God normally is our sin. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin. He took the wrath that we deserved for that sin so that when God looks at us, when our faith is in Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He sees us washed clean. So that now, when our faith is in Christ, we can enter that most holy place. Metaphorically speaking, the presence of God with confidence. Jesus' resurrection shows that God accepted the payment that Jesus made on the cross. I mean, it's kind of like a check that cleared, that God accepted the payment. So now Jesus lives. He's not just a dead Savior. He's a living Savior in heaven. He's the great high priest who's making intercession for us, constantly making sure that we can still come before God. Now we see in this passage that Jesus made a way through the curtain that is his body. You may be wondering, okay, what's this curtain talking about in this passage? You see, between the holy place and the most holy place in the, in the temple or the tabernacle, there is this giant curtain. Now keep in mind, only one person ever went through that curtain each year. But there's a curtain that separates the most holy place from the holy place. And, and according to this passage, we have access to the most holy place. The curtain is no longer there separating us from the intimate presence of God. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 27, we see that Jesus— open the way for us to be able to get into that most holy place. This is right at the time of Christ's death on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 50 says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. That means he died. The very next verse says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. So this is talking about uh, literally in the temple in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, at the moment that Jesus died, God tore that curtain separating the most holy place from the rest of the world. He tore that curtain in two, symbolizing that now anyone whose faith is in Christ has access, uninhibited access, to God. And look at the way the, the, the author here in these verses describes this awe-inspiring relationship we can have with God. He says that we can have confidence to enter the most holy place. I mean, before the most holy place was feared, I mean, only one high priest went in there once a year, and he went in with great trembling. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. I mean, think about the change that's taking place because of what Christ has done. I mean, this is the God of the universe we're talking about here. The King of kings, Lord of lords, the creator of all things. And we have confidence to come before Him, to make ourselves at home in His presence. I mean, there are a lot of things in our lives that we don't have confidence in. But the relationship you have with someone makes a difference in how much confidence you have in their presence. Think about when you go to your doctor's office. Uh, you go in the, the front door, you sit in the waiting room until someone calls you back. And then when, you're, when usually a nurse calls you back, you sit in the examination room until the doctor comes in. Doctor sees you, says goodbye, then you leave. That's typically what you do in a doctor's office. Odds are good in a doctor's office, you probably wouldn't have the boldness or the audacity to go into that doctor's personal office and make yourself at home in there, would you? Probably not. I know I don't have that type of boldness. But I don't think my doctor would be very happy if I did that. It makes a big difference when you have a different type of relationship with that doctor. Growing up, my dad was a dentist. He's still a dentist uh, to this day. My dad's dentist office was, was just a few blocks from my school. And so oftentimes, especially in middle school, I'd walk to his office after school and wait for a little while until he was done with work, and then we'd go home together. When I went into that dentist office, I didn't go in, in the same way that normal patients did. I went in the side door. that only employees go in. I just went in. No one raised an eyebrow that I was going in there. I wouldn't just sit in the waiting room or something like that. I would go into my dad's office. I'd sit in my dad's chair. If I wanted to get some paper or a pen, I'd open up his desk drawer. Um, oftentimes, I'd want to see if anyone sent me any letters. I mean, it was rare. I was always told by my parents that, I shouldn't expect to get a whole lot of mail if I'm not sending let- letters out as well. But I'd always go through my, the mail to see if I got anything that day. i made myself at home there, and I did so with a lot of confidence because I, I had my dad's permission to do that. He was very happy to have me there, making myself at home in his office, in his personal office. See, it's very different when you have that type of relationship with the person whose place you're in. I mean, you wouldn't—I wouldn't do that with my doctor here in port today— I would do that with my dad because I have that father-son type of relationship with him. And we can have that same relationship with God where we come before God with utmost confidence because of what Christ has done for us. We have no reason to fear him. He says later in this passage that we can draw near to God with a sincere heart. We don't have to put on a false front. We don't have to try to say, look, God, look at all these good things I did. God already accepts us if our faith is in Christ. We can come before him with full assurance of faith. He cleanses us from a guilty conscience. We don't have to worry about, God, are you going to hold that against me, that thing I did in the past sometime? Because he's already paved the way through Christ for us to enter his presence with confidence. Now in verse 23 here, the author says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And we see we have such great hope and being able to come confidently before God. Jesus enables us to draw near to God with confidence. But we need to hold unswervingly to this hope. It says that God's faithful. He's not going to run away. He's not going to do something that prevents us from coming into His presence. But when we examine our lives, we, rec- we need to recognize that we are the ones who are very prone to wandering away from God. In fact, we sang that earlier in the song, Come Thou Fount, the last verse it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And there are many factors that can cause us to wander away from God, to stop holding unswervingly to the hope that we have in Christ. I mean, I think about factors like temptations, which tempt us, entice us to prioritize other things in our lives, to, that we want to seek those things for a sense of security and hope and purpose rather than seeking God. I think of distractions. I mean, things that are not inherently bad in our lives, but distractions like family and work and friends and hobbies that that can pull us in a lot of different directions and we get so busy that we lose our focus on God. I think of doubts that enter our minds. Uh, Doubts of, well, is God even really there? Does God really exist? Does God really love me? What in the world is God doing right now? It seems like He's making a mess in my life. He's messing up my perfect plan. Those doubts can pull us away from God. There can also be pressures that we face that can pull us away from God. I think about peer pressure that a lot of our students face in their schools. Pressure to turn their back on Christ. Pressure that makes them think that they are fools if they believe in Christ. I think of pressure that many of us face from family members even. Even our closest family members can make us, uh, can say that we're fools or they want to mock us because of our relationship with Christ. There's also pressure from the media and from um, non-Christian authors and movies to turn our back on Christ. I read a book a few months ago called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a very outspoken atheist. He said in the first chapter of that book that if this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists by the time they put it down. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And you can imagine, in a book that thick, he's going to be putting a lot of pressure on Christians and other religious people to abandon their faith in God by the time they put that book down. There, there's a movement out there right now called the New Atheism, where in the past, atheists typically would just point to the scientific proofs that they thought would disprove the existence of God. Now these new athe- atheists are going on the offensive, being more aggressive to try to mock Christians and other people who believe in God to try to say that we are, we are dumb, we're foolish to believe in God. I mean, they, they don't pull any, pull any st- I mean, they, they do everything they can. They don't pull any punches in trying to make Christians and other people who believe in God feel, feel dumb. So we have a lot of pressures. We have a lot of doubts that can enter our minds, temptations, distractions that can pull us away from God. These are all things that can prevent us from making Christ number one in our lives but the author of Hebrews offers a remedy, a secret ingredient that can help keep us strong in our walk with God. As I said, what I've shared so far is tempted to leave out of this message uh, because I wanted to focus on the last couple of verses here, which we're getting to. But what I realized is that the, this forms one continuous thought. It's the idea that, you know what, we have such tremendous access to God, but there are so many things that can cause us to, to pull away from Him a little bit. The author says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And then he gives us a way to hold on to Christ. This is actually, in the original language, all one sentence. So it's one continuous thought all the way through. Now, coming to verses 24 and 25, the author is telling us that fellowship enables us to hold on to Jesus with perseverance. Fellowship enables us to hold on to Jesus with perseverance. Let me read these two verses. The author says, And let us consider how we may spur one one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So fellowship with other Christians enables us to hold on to Jesus with perseverance. Now, to be truthful, I was very hesitant to use that word fellowship. I was trying hard this week to come up with a different word besides fellowship but I couldn't come up with a better one. The reason I was hesitant to use that word fellowship is because of how it's been watered down in our culture today. Even, even among Christians, we oftentimes have a, have a very superficial view of what fellowship is. We oftentimes label almost anything that Christians can do, to get, do together as fellowship. I mean, you have two Christians who sit down for coffee together. They don't really discuss Jesus very much. They just shoot the breeze about their day, about what's going on in their family. They call that fellowship because it's two Christians together. Or you see a group of Christian guys who all go to a baseball or a football game together. They say, wow, that was great fellowship. Even though they may have not talked much about Christ during that time, they, they think that since they're together as Christians, that must be fellowship. Or after church, you see someone over in the lobby or in fellowship hall, and you talk with them for a couple of minutes about what's going on in life, and then you part ways, and you say, oh, no, that was some nice fellowship. I'm not saying those things can't be fellowship. But I think we need to be careful not to have a superficial view of fellowship that says that fellowship is anything and everything that Christians do together. We need to return to more of a biblical view of what fellowship is. And the biblical view of fellowship goes deeper. It goes to more of sharing life together, uh, of getting to know each other on a more personal and intimate basis so that we can deeply encourage one another to keep following God. And here in this passage, in these last couple of verses, twenty four and twenty-five, we see the biblical view of what fellowship really is, at least a snapshot of it. The author says, let us in- consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It says that true biblical fellowship will provide motivation for a Christ-like lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that's, that's characterized by love. You, know, you think about Jesus who said that, that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, God is love. We're called to love others around us, but we live in a culture that values holding grudges and and getting revenge and, and gossiping about how people have hurt us. We live in a culture that really gives lip service to love, but doesn't really live it out. So we need the fellowship of Christians around us to help us live out lives of love. So we also ought to spur one another on toward good deeds. Good deeds are, are the good things we do in serving others around us and, and meeting people's practical needs. He's saying here that we need to meet together in order to motivate one another to live this sort of Christian lifestyle. And I think of a couple different ways that meeting together can help us live out this love and these good deeds. One way is by holding us accountable to, to show love and good deeds to everyone around us, whether it's in our family or our work or in our neighborhood or other places, to point us to what God's calling us to and to enable us to live that out. But one of the other ways that Christian fellowship helps in this is it gives us an opportunity to show love and good deeds to, to other Christians. It opens up the pathway to show that Christian lifestyle to those other Christians right around us. I think about people here at Freedness Church who, even very recently, I've seen people showing great love and good deeds to one another, and it's very encouraging. For instance, in the last month, when me list a few of the things I've seen just within the Freedness family, I've seen, for instance, a man who's good at working on cars, uh, do some very significant repairs on, on a car of a single mom within our church. I've seen a family who has uh, donated a, a significant amount of money in order to be able to help out a person who is in great need. I saw other families give Christmas gifts to people in our church family who are in significant need. I saw people provide meals for a family who is struggling i saw people go out of their way to make phone calls just to check up to see how are you doing to encourage one another and then to be praying for one another through their hardships and it's very encouraging to me to see people within the freedoms family even very recently showing love and good deeds to one another and that's what fellowship enables us to do if you don't have true fellowship with one another you aren't going to know the needs of those around you but fellowship enables you to, to show this Christian love and good deeds to one another and also to the broader world. But one of the things that fellowship does is it provides accountability to live out these things. In verse 24 it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on. The spurring one another on is a very strong word. Uh, it only occurs one other time in the New Testament. And that's in Acts 15 where Paul and Barnabas are having a major conflict over whether they should take another man, Mark, along with them on a missionary journey. They have such a strong conflict that they part ways for a while. That's the only other time that this word for spur on is used in the New Testament. But in this case, it's used in a positive way. Spurring one another on, holding one another accountable, pushing one another forward to make sure that you're living out that Christian lifestyle. We all need that spurring on from time to time. Or else it's going to be easy to, to either walk away from God or allow our heart for God to grow cold or be compromised in our lives for Him. So you see here um, that, that we need this motivation. We also need encouragement through life's up and, ups and downs. In verse 25 it says, Let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's talking about the day. It's talking about the return of Christ. And we need to encourage one another through life's ups and downs. And we all have ups and downs. Sometimes our downs are, are deep, deep valleys that it feels like we're never going to get out of. And in those times, or even in the good times in life, we need people, people around us to share our joys, to share our, our sorrows, just to journey with us through life. And Christian fellowship allows for this. Now you see in these things, one of the things when you read between the lines of this passage is it shows that fellowship... Requires authentic connections with others around us. Requires authentic connections. I mean, this doesn't happen if you are um, just loosely connected with those around you. Honestly, this type of fellowship can't happen in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings in a typical church service. I mean, think about it. Right now, how many faces do you see? One. And you might, out of your peripheral vision, you may see parts of other faces around you. But a church service, it accomplishes other great purposes, such as uniting in our worship of God, such as receiving biblical teaching. But a church service like this is not the place to establish deep, authentic connections, life-giving connections with others. For that, you need something else. I mean, you can connect some uh, in the lobby between services or something like that. But this is one of the reasons we emphasize life groups so much here at Freedom Church. Life groups are groups of usually 5 to 15 people who meet on a regular basis, usually every week or every other week, to share life together, to study God's Word together, to talk about applying it together, to to pray for one another. These are great places to go deeper, to get that authentic connection and fellowship that we need to persevere in our faith. Now, authentic connections are, are necessary. Also, regularly meeting with one another is very important as well. Um, it says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. There are many reasons why people don't meet together for deeper connections. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's uh, just busyness. Sometimes it's not seeing the need to. In this, in, in this church that, that this author is writing to, it may very well be a fear of persecution. If, if these Christians identify themselves with other Christians, they may be persecuted for their faith. But we're told, don't give up meeting together. Find ways to connect authentically with one another where you can find motivation to live out your Christian life, where you can find encouragement, where you can find accountability. Because in our walk with God, as in every other part of life, we need those others around us to to enable us to reach our goals. I want to tell you a story of uh, two men I've known in my life. It's really a case study uh, of a guy named Jared and a guy named Joel. They have very similar backgrounds. I knew them back when I was in campus ministry and also when I was a college student, one of them. Um, They have similar backgrounds. They both um, enjoyed sports a lot. They both grew up going to church quite a bit, but they didn't really see the significance of God in their lives. They both came to know Christ. Uh, They placed their faith in Christ when they were college freshmen. They, They were excited about knowing Christ. But within years, a few years, their lives radically diverged. One of them is currently a missionary taking the gospel to various Muslim countries over in the Middle Eastern area of the world. The other one isn't walking with God anymore. And I look back and and wonder, what was the difference between them? Because they both started off very similarly, very passionately in their walk with God. What made the difference? I think the difference was fellowship. One of them, the one who's currently a missionary, was able to, he 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 was very passionate about connecting with other Christians. He was in small groups constantly. And he has been ever since that day. That kept him strong in his walk with God. The other guy, I mean, he was in a, a small group here and there, but he was never very consistent. After about a year, he stopped attending small groups and other Christian fellowship opportunities altogether. He's not walking with God anymore. I mean, I look at my own life and wonder, where would I be without the opportunity to connect with other Christians. I've even had interactions with people here at Freedom's Church in which I tell them, you know what, if you don't get connected somewhere, odds are very good that you're going to fall away from Christ. And I've seen that happen. I've seen some people come back from that, but, but it's a reality that happens in our lives. So we need to ask, okay, how can we prioritize Christ in our lives? I mean, this passage says we can draw near to Christ, with, or near to God with confidence because of what Christ has done. How do we do that? Well, we do it largely by connecting with other Christians who are going to help motivate us in that. I want to give us a very practical way we can do this in the next few weeks. You have most likely heard about this Not a Fan series that we're starting next week. Not a Fan talks about not being a fan of Jesus, but being a fully committed follower of Christ. And we're starting a sermon series next week. It's a six-week sermon series about going deeper in our commitment with God. But there's also a small group component, a life group component, where we have 11 life groups uh, around the church, a meeting throughout the week. They're found on the back of your bulletin in which you can go deeper in your commitment to Christ along with one another in fellowship where you can receive motivation and encouragement and accountability to, gr- to going deeper in your walk with Christ. These life groups are going to start in just over a week and I want to encourage everyone to get involved in one. It's not a long-term commitment. It's six weeks. It's a great way to jumpstart your walk with God and, and to, to find that motivation that you need to to f- follow through on that goal of making Christ number one. You can sign up on your connection card, um, and uh, we'd love to just see everyone be able to get connected with one of these for those six weeks. There's also uh, followers' journals. These are optional journals available for $8 that are daily devotionals that you can follow through the, um, through the six weeks. They look like this. Today is the last day to order them through Freedens. We're going to place an order for them tomorrow. And then they'll be here uh, next Sunday for you to pick up if you've ordered one. You can order one by signing up on the connection card and putting your money for that in, um, in the offering plate in one of the white envelopes that's in your pew. And now um, the DVD, or the, the life groups we're going to be experiencing are based on a DVD curriculum. And I want to show a bit of a kind of a movie trailer for this curriculum right now. So enjoy the Not a Fan curriculum. <coughs> So we start next week in church, and then small uh, life groups for Not a Fan will start uh, in the days following. And so I'm, I'm very excited about this possibility of going deeper in our walks with God. Um, it should be very exciting, and I want to encourage all of us to be a part of moving from being simply a fan of Jesus to being a follower. As the come forward to receive this morning's offering, let's pray.